So 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. And then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Interesting how we begin this chapter. As at this point, David had fled from Naoth and Ramah because he knew that Saul had come to that place to pursue him and seek his life. And so David leaves Naoth and he comes to where he knew Jonathan was to confront him. He wanted to confront his, his good friend, Jonathan. And the reason why David was confronting Jonathan was because back in chapter 18, they had made a covenant with each other, promising to look out after each other. But here's Jonathan's father, Saul, seeking to kill David without having been warned by Jonathan. What? Why? We made a covenant. Thought we were going to you know, look after each other and warn each other if there's any danger coming our way. How is it that your dad is, is here seeking after my life and you haven't warned me? Jonathan, you see, had warned David once before, even advocated for him when Saul had put a hit out on David's life. And, of course, David would be wondering if Jonathan was still thinking the same way or, or perhaps things have changed. At this point, he's being confronted. Are we still the same? Are you still holding to that covenant that we had made? Or have things changed, Jonathan? When David confronted Jonathan, he asked him what sin was prompting Saul to seek his life. What is it that I've done? It's a great question. Why? What have I done? What is my guilt? Whenever we are accused or hear of someone being accused, we should ask the same question. What have I done? Or what have they done? What is my guilt? What is their, their guilt? What is my sin? Really, the bottom line is, what is my sin? Because really, we need to put it in the context of the Bible. What, what is my sin? How have I sinned against the Lord? How have I sinned against you? Two ways to answer this, either a yes or a no. There's nothing in between. If there is something, great. Now you know. Now you can confess. You can repent and make things right. You have that opportunity. If there's nothing, great. You have a clear conscience and anyone that is accusing needs to stop. And those listening to the accusations need to stop listening and remove themselves from the person continuing to bring false accusations or else they are in sin. Joining the scoffer as he is described in Psalm chapter one, the brother who is sowing seeds of discord and desiring to divide. This is what this is what David wanted to know. If there is anything you tell me right now, I need to know. This is where David was going with this. Where's my sin? And Jonathan, sincerely, at this point, 
knew nothing about his father going after David. And in fact, at this point, he could not believe that his father would keep it from him. Because he, he had told him everything up to that point. He would tell him everything. But David continued to explain things to Jonathan. Verse 3, he said, But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David here reasoned with Jonathan. And this implies his desire for Jonathan to think about why Saul hadn't told him what he was going to do. I, I know, Jonathan, you think that your, dad, your, your dad tells you everything. But think about this, Jonathan. This is perhaps why your dad did not tell you why he was coming and seeking my life in Ramah. Think about this. Because David and Jonathan both knew that Saul knew that they were great friends. That they were dear friends. He knew that. Come on, think about this, Jonathan. David was thinking the best of Saul. This is interesting. Or, or at least he, he wanted to bring the news gently to Jonathan to confront him in a gentle manner. When he told Jonathan that he thought his father was perhaps sparing Jonathan of the grief of knowing that Saul was going after David to kill him. Maybe that's why your dad didn't tell you. He wanted to spare you of the grief of thinking of, of me coming, of uh, Saul coming after David and seeking to kill him. And David then stated the obvious after pointing that out. What everyone knew, he was, that he was very close to death if he remained in Saul's presence. It was three times Remember, there was David playing and singing away to soothe Saul's spirit. And in that very moment of, of worshiping and, and being in that place of serving Saul, Saul three times threw a spear trying to pin David to the wall, drive it through him, and he failed. Jonathan knew all of this. The good thing at this point is that Jonathan thought about it and he, and he conceded to David. When Jonathan said, whatever you say, I will do for you, he was asking what David wanted to do to address the issue. I understand, David. I get it. What do you want to do? David, at this point, had tested whether Jonathan could be trusted and he was willing, and whether he was willing to do the right thing. And James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so David was testing Jonathan. Are you willing to do the right thing now that you know what the right thing to do is? And he was willing. Because there is the sin of commission, and then there is the sin of omission. Knowing what not to do is a good thing. But then knowing what to do and not doing it is still another and it's still a sin. Well, he was willing to hear David out. What would you like to do, David? And he answered him. 
verse 5, David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asks leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Let's stop there. David um, has come up with a plan to test Saul. He wanted to test him whether he still had murderous intentions for David or, or not. He knew the next day there was a festival in which David would be expected to attend and sit at his appointed seat, which is interesting to me because it, it was interesting that he was still expected to come and to sit at the festival in his appointed seat, even after Saul had attempted to kill David with a spear three times, not, not once, not twice, but three times. And then Saul having put a, a hit out on his life. And then after that, the third time that he attempted to take his life with a spear. Interesting, but he was still expected to come. After attempting to do harm to someone, and no reconciliation has taken place. How could anyone expect things to just be okay and go on as before? You see, the situation is out of place and it needs to be set right. Again, going back to the illustration of the broken bone. Try and walk on a broken bone. Has anyone tried to do that? I'm, I'm sure there's always someone. You won't admit it. Yeah, there, there you go. Craig, actually, you walked on it for some time, didn't you? Did it make it better? No, it, it makes it worse. And sometimes I've heard that if you let it go like that, it'll, it'll try and heal it, right? But does it heal right? We have some in the medical field that, that know it, it, it doesn't. And it doesn't function right. So sometimes, what, what happens with bones when they're not set right? They have to be rebroken sometimes, yeah. Rebroken and then put back together, right? Maybe with pins and plates. I, you know, it just, it won't, it won't function right. It won't work right. It needs to be set. There needs to be reconciliation. David wasn't about to put himself in a vulnerable place again until he knew things were made right. What was the test? Well, it was simply Saul's response to David's absence. That was the test. David discerned, if Saul doesn't mind and is happy for David, then all would be well. All's good. But if Saul gets angry, then harm is determined in the heart of Saul toward David. Saul's intentions would be confirmed one way or the other. David also requested that Jonathan deal kindly with him. Have mercy on me. Deal kindly with me. And don't insist on me coming to your father. Because Jonathan, you know that your father wants to kill me. Instead, David challenged him once more. 
He attested Jonathan and his friendship, you know, up to this point a couple times, and, and yet once again, he challenged him, saying that if any guilt is found in him to kill him at once, why waste time if there's anything? It's one of those things to where if, if, there's, if there's any doubt, then you, hey, you take me out yourself. If, if there's any sin, you need to point it out. Be a true friend and you point it out. But don't deliver me over without me knowing firsthand that I have some kind of sin against the Lord. It seems to me that David was sensing that Jonathan hadn't entirely bought into the fact that his father still wanted to kill David. Still get that. Even though it's true, sometimes evil intentions by certain people, is, it's just, it's tough to believe. There's, it's hard to understand, to, to grasp, especially when they're close to us. I can't believe that. I'm kind of hearing you, and I, I, I see, I understand, but on one hand, you say, yeah, I see it. On the other hand, it's like, it's hard to believe. Someone is close to me. After all, this is Jonathan's father. But the fact was, it was true. It's true. His father meant evil against David. And it was for no good reason. He had no justification whatsoever. David hadn't done nothing but serve him. Think about this. That's all he had done. David had served him. He came to the front lines and took out a giant for Israel. And then he was brought into the service of Saul. And and he served him. He made him a, a commander, the commander of the army. He would be brought in to play for Saul. To soothe him, to bring him peace when he was tormented by these uh, tormenting spirits. He was there to serve him. There's no good reason for Saul to seek his life. And so because David was discerning this, the discussion continued in verse 9. And Jonathan said, after David had told him, hey, listen, if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself or For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Stop there. You see, Jonathan kept going back to uh, this disbelief that his father hadn't been up front with him 
about his desire to kill David. He just, just he was there. So David discerned correctly. But David simply asked Jonathan, if you don't tell me whether your father wants to kill me or not, then who will? For there's no one else who's going to warn me. There's no one else that's going to come to me. And it was at that point that Jonathan reasoned with David and promised to sound out his father, to find out his father's father's thoughts or opinions toward David in the way David had asked him to. Jonathan vowed to tell David. He promised to tell David if his father meant harm. And Jonathan finally agreed to test his father to see exactly where his heart was as it pertained to David. Yeah, I'll do this. I'll do this very thing. Jonathan also acknowledged that the Lord had been with his father and desired that the Lord be with David. That's interesting because the Lord had been with Saul. And Jonathan acknowledged that. Just as the Lord had been with David, and and he knew. He knew that he had been anointed, he had been chosen as the next to the throne of Israel. Jonathan came to an understanding that the Lord was with both his father and his dear friend David. But we know that Saul had rejected walking in obedience and humility before God. And that was his downfall. It was pride. Verse 14, Jonathan continues, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan was remembering that he had acknowledged that David was the next king of Israel and was reiterating it here. And asked David to make a covenant with him to have mercy on his family and to to not cut them off entirely when he became king. You see, it was common practice in that day to kill all the potential rulers of the previous royal house, the royal family, when another person or another family assumed the throne. And so Jonathan knew this, and he says, just promise me that for my family that you would, that you would spare us, that you, not, you would not kill us off. And so David promised. And eventually, David kept his promise when he became king. In 2 Samuel, we'll see that as we come to it in, in chapters 9, and then again in 21, we'll see evidence of this. So David kept his word to his friend Jonathan and did not completely cut him off but did quite the opposite. We'll read about that as we come to it. Well, this story continues in verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. 
just a heartbreaking kind of a story here. Jonathan, at this point, had yet understood. He's, he's at the point of agreeing. He'll follow through with this. Jonathan explained to David how he would let him know, how he would communicate to him how his father responded to David, David's absence. Jonathan told him exactly where to go and wait. If they're close, it's all good. But if the arrows are shot far beyond, then it's time for David to go. Very simply, just to summarize what we just went through, that's what he was telling him. He said, you know, this is how you'll know. I will tell you one way or the other. Jonathan acknowledged that it was the Lord that was sending David away. If this was the case. And then Jonathan promised that all this would be kept in confidence between them two. It would not be disclosed to his father or anyone else. What a, what a critical time. David would either be welcomed back to his home, to the palace, or he would be sent away as a fugitive, one way or the other. As a fugitive, he would leave all behind. His family, his home, just everything would be left behind, and he would be on the run. So verse 24, so David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David, David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and set my brothers and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So the next day came, just as we had found out, uh, the festival of the new moon. And, uh, and this festival started. The king and his court sat down to eat food, but there was no David. His spot was empty. First day, Saul excused it. And Saul thought about it, though, but dismissed it, thinking it was possible that David perhaps wasn't uh, ceremoniously clean. But that was only good for a day because that lasted for a day. And then they go through their religious practices and then they would, be, they would be clean once again. The second day, Saul questioned why David wasn't there. It's interesting that he directed the question directly to Jonathan. They, he knew that they were friends. There's a reason. We're going to see in a moment that his dad knew. Dad knew that they were very close friends. But we need to notice how Saul referred to David. Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? It's interesting because it's something that was pointed out and something that I, that I know happens 
when we want to refer to someone in a demeaning way. We want to make them small. We're tearing them down by perhaps not saying a person's name. You know, you know, that guy, you know, that girl, that person. You know, we say these things and and, and what we mean is to, to degrade them, to shame, to minimize them. That's what we desire to do in our hearts. We've already done it. It just comes out of our mouth. And that's exactly what Saul was doing as he referred to David in this manner. He was referring to David in a lowly manner, pointing out his lowly place and purposely degrading him. Jonathan did not react to that, but simply told his father what David and he had agreed to say. I'm sure at this point, Jonathan was hoping for the best. What would his father do? Would he prove to have good intentions toward David or would he prove to have bad intentions toward David? And Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty, Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. We don't judge for condemnation, but we do judge the fruit. We see what kind of fruit, whether good or bad. A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. The ball was in Saul's court. What was he going to do? Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Well, there it was. There's the answer. Saul became angry. At this point, he not only was angry toward David, but he was furious. He was filled with anger toward Jonathan. And Jonathan, at this point, was shamed by his father and accused of choosing David over him to the shame of his parents. You've chosen them, him, over us. Your your mother and your father, how dare you? And then Saul commanded Jonathan to deliver David into his hands to kill him. Now Now you know, Jonathan, this is my intention. This is what I want to do. You son of a... calls him son of a perverse, rebellious woman. You're definitely not the son of your mother. You're definitely not my son. And we know in today's terms what that would end with, right? You son of a... And that's what he was telling. He's telling that to his own son. Shaming him. His father stated his intentions plainly. No doubt. He revealed that he knew that David threatened his throne and Jonathan would never succeed Saul's kingship as long as David remained alive. Jonathan, do you not understand? There's something wrong with you? Do you not understand? While he lives, you will not see the throne. He must die. And Saul went off. 
calling him a son of a perverse, rebellious woman because that is what he thought of him at the moment, making it known that he didn't feel he was acting like his son. Now Jonathan knew, but Jonathan didn't stay silent. He challenged his father with the truth. There was no sin in David against his father. Verse 32, then Jonathan answered Saul's father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Paul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Well, at this point, Jonathan had all the proof he needed. David was right. I knew his father was determined to kill David. Saul, in the midst of his anger, even attempted to kill his own son. He didn't just shame him, but he attempted to kill him. In a fit of rage, even those closest to you aren't safe. Blinded by anger, people can do things that are inexplicable, unreasonable, beyond the soundness of mind, beyond unreasonableness. It is the work of the devil to bring division, destruction, and death to anyone who does not agree with the person. When Saul was challenged after having tried to use the tactic of shaming his son, he was frustrated in his rage and attempted to literally destroy when his son challenged him with the truth. He did everything in his power at that point to try and silence him, even trying to drive a spear through him. Well, at this point, Jonathan was filled with a fierce anger. He was angered. Sure, he was hurt, but he was angry. And he got up. But here's the difference between his father and him. His father was uncontrolled. He did not control his anger, but Jonathan controlled his anger. He got up from the table and left. That's all he did. He grieved for David because his father's intentions were revealed. And he also grieved because his father had disgraced him, treated him shamefully. The actions you see of one person have the potential of impacting many people, even crushing the spirit of people closest to us. Oh, we ought to be careful in times uh, of anger. We should, we should really be aware of, of having fits of anger. It's getting to the point of being enraged. Because we do things and say things in those times that we deeply regret. And there are words that we can never bring back. We can never pull back. We can never withdraw. They're embedded deep in the heart of those that we've spoken them to deep. 
Let's be careful how we respond to confrontation and make sure to keep your anger under control. Sometimes even when we're confronted with the truth, with a brother or a sister, we need to be careful. We need to hold our tongue. We need to consider whether it's true or not and respond accordingly. And if we can't respond in, with a, a gentle spirit, then we ought to ask for a moment, walk away, but come back. Come back in the spirit and make sure that you handle the situation correctly. Let's make sure that we respond to confrontation rightly. Keeping our anger under control. Be angry, the Bible tells us, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Ephesians 4.26. Psalm fourteen or 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Jonathan was grieved for David and crushed by his father's treatment of him. In verse 35, as we close, In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the, when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David arose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us. In the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. David was now a fugitive. And Jonathan was disgraced by his father for standing in the truth, just as he had disgraced David as well. So it is for you and I. So it is for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ. They don't like us because they don't like the truth. Paul said in Galatians 4.16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That was the Apostle Paul speaking. In John, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Make ourselves a friend of the world, and we know that we are opposed to the very God that we say we follow and whom is our Lord. David wept. Jonathan wept. They embraced. Said their goodbyes. Because after having shot the arrows, David knew it was time to leave. The boy left, David came out, and David and Jonathan, having confirmed that Saul was after David, David's life, they confirmed their covenants they had made with each other, and Jonathan sent him away with a blessing of peace. 
is wishing him well. Go in peace. What an emotional and stressful time. Because from here on out, David will be on the run as a fugitive, being constantly pursued by Saul. But listen to this. Through this, we can, we can see this as, as a very low moment. And it was. Of course, it's a very low moment. But also keep in mind that God is doing something in both the life of Jonathan and in the life of David. He's preparing David for the throne. Even in this place, this, this lowly shepherd kid that, that was tending to his father's flocks out in the field is now a fugitive on the run who had once been in the palace ministering, serving the king of Israel. Now he's being falsely accused of who knows what. It didn't matter as far as Saul was concerned. He just desired to kill him, take him out. And yet David had done nothing wrong. And through it all, David was learning to trust in the Lord and no one else, as I said at the very beginning. And you know, the question for us is, what if... What if we got to the point, would we see this as, what does the Lord have against me? Why is the Lord against me? Why has the Lord allowed all this to happen? And, and David could have gone into the state of depression, of being very low. Why are all the doors closing? Why do I no longer have opportunities? The ones that I, the ones that I once had are no longer available. I was once in the palace and now I'm on the run. And many people come to the point of saying, woe is me. I am a victim. The Lord is against me. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, right? As we've learned in Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law. Oh, the, the world is against us. We can get into that state of mind. Let's not lose heart. Let's not lose heart in the Lord because in the Lord we have hope and we know that even through those low times that the Lord is working in us and preparing us for something he has before us. David was learning to trust in the Lord and so we ought to learn to trust in the Lord also. Through the moments where we're on mountaintops and, and in the valleys too, in the darkest of days. Lean on the Lord, for he is trustworthy. He is faithful. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is closer than a friend. And he is the very one who demonstrated his love toward you while you were still his enemy. Think about that. He laid down his life for you. And he gives you the hope of being in his glory for all eternity by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If, if anyone can be trusted, it would be the Lord. Draw close to him. He will be your strength. He will be your refuge. And I want to leave you with this, because this is something very important to learn through this, this study. Ephesians 4.31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Father, 
We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your forgiveness. Oh, Lord. I pray that we, Lord, would learn to identify when what we're thinking and saying and doing is in opposition to the truth and op- opposition to the Spirit. And we would choose instead to do the right thing. Lord, I pray that we would be kind and forgiving toward each other. That we would choose to do the right thing and choose truth. That we would not insist on our own way, but surrender, submit, yield to the truth that comes from you. Lord, let us glorify you in our lives. Let us not be angry in sin. Or when we are angry, I pray that we would be under control. And we would respond in a manner that is right in your eyes. And not sin. And So, Lord, we thank you for this evening's chapter. Lord, this lesson, Father, I, I know that there are many things that that were learned beyond what I, I can even uh, come up with, Lord. But through your word, it just does, it never returns void. It accomplishes that which you have set forth for it to accomplish in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that we would allow this word to resonate in our hearts, meditating on your word, and just chew on it for a while. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.